The foundation of wisdom is this. God is eternal. And he created everything else. Psalm 104, 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. In the beginning, God spoke with wisdom ex nihilo and created, brought order out of the darkness, brought order out of chaos. There was darkness, and God said, let there be light, which is theological foreshadowing, by the way. For light, Christ is the light that has overcome darkness. It's as if the gospel is the power of God. It's as if God loves to lead with good news. Like the beginning of Scripture, 2 Samuel 20 shows us the necessity of wisdom. That's the title of my sermon this morning. The necessity of wisdom. Chapter 20 begins in chaos. Chapter 20 begins with darkness. Chaos, darkness, until wisdom speaks, then there's peace. Chapter 20 begins with darkness, and it's the darkness of worthless men. And there are many worthless men in this story. And it's not the first time that we've seen worthless men in Samuel. The sons of Eli were called worthless men. Nabal was called a worthless man. And only just a few chapters ago, David was called worthless. The sons of Eli were worthless. They were wicked men who used God's people for their pleasure. Nabal, worthless, a fool who forsook God's anointed. And David fits the bill, does he not? He was worthless. He used God's people for his own pleasure. He forsook God's word. He was a fool. All these worthless men in almost a worthless text until Lady Wisdom speaks up. Literally speaking, a faithful daughter of Israel spoke wisdom and united the people of God. She spoke wisdom and united David to the throne. Her wisdom overcame these worthless men and brought peace. And the moral of the story? You need wisdom. You need wisdom or else chaos. You have a choice, the wisdom of the Lord or chaos. That's the story. The necessity of wisdom, verse 1. It says, the writer of 2 Samuel writes, Now there happened to be there a worthless man. Now there happened to be there. While the sons of Israel were arguing, that's the context, while they were arguing amongst themselves who was the greatest in the kingdom, were introduced to our worthless man. Worthless man, number one. Again, not the first worthless. It seems to be worthless means you act contrary to God's word because every time we run into these worthless men, we see these worthless men ignoring God's word, acting contrary to God's word, which is the story of our lives. So our lives often tend towards chaos and darkness. So here's this worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bitri, a Benjamite. He blew the trumpet. He blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David. 
We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, so Israel. His worthlessness, he sought to divide the people of God. In his worthlessness, forsaking, he's worthless because he's forsaking God's anointed, and he's worthless because he's dividing the people of God. Sheba rejected Yahweh's king, and he's not only rejecting the king, he's rejecting the one who crowned him. He's rejecting God's word. That's what worthless men do. And because of this worthlessness, it's hard to see the kingdom of God in this chapter. As you read this chapter, it's, it's kind of hard to swallow. It's hard to look at. It's hard to see. Not in the sense that you can't see the kingdom. It's in the sense that you just don't want to. You don't want to see what's going on in this chapter. There's worthless everywhere. Sheba's worthless to David. David's worthless to his concubines. And Joab's worthless to Amasa. And if it wasn't for the one reference, only one reference to Yahweh at the very end of the chapter, this chapter would be without God. It's just a story of human actors doing what human actors love to do. Chaos. Sin, misery, and death. It is true that people do good. You can go on the internet and you can see stories of people doing good things. The internet just happens to be more of a cesspool of the opposite. But you've experienced people being kind to you. You've experienced good people, but I bet you've also experienced the opposite. I bet you've seen the opposite. I bet you are the opposite. Often with neighbors. And unfortunately, the kingdom of God is also filled with the opposite. Here is Sheba. And today we got Sheba ministers in the church, false ministers who love to divide the people of God. They, they want to divide the people of God, and so they, they ignore Scripture. Rather, no, they twist Scripture, and they twist Scripture for their own purposes and their own preconceived ideals. And you do well as a Christian to reject these ministers. So you do well to be confessional and Presbyterian. So that you're not alone in rejecting false ministers. You see, the Reformed faith allows the church to correct the church. You see, God's word, God's word has given us Presbyterianism because there are a lot of worthless men in the world. And this is a worthless world. And we need the accountability of the church. We need the wider church correcting the local church. Because if we don't have the wider body of the Lord, you see, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the Word is that He unites the church together. And the wisdom of the Lord unites the church together to correct the church so that the local church is not chaos. But if you strip the local church from the wider church, you're going to find in that local church darkness. Wisdom calls the church together. And we order ourselves rightly and overcome the confusion when we're one, when we're united. But sadly, American religion loves and seems to support Sheba. It's the fruit of our independence and our autonomy. So many today are now determined to go their own way. I call it sola, solo fide. Not sola fide, faith alone, but solo, me alone. I think, therefore I am. I read the Bible, therefore it is. I'm the sole interpreter. I alone am the church, here for the first time, in charge, in command, making it up as I go along. Fresh on the scene. But wisdom calls the church to liability. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to that 
chapter or that verse, Hebrews 13. Americans hate this verse. I'm sorry, Americans. Um, Hebrews 13, 17. Luther wanted to put the, uh, the book of James at the back of his epistle. I think Americans want to put Hebrews in the back. Uh, at least chapter 13. Hebrews 13, 17. Hear now God's word. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders. He's talking about the church, by the way, not the government. For that text, you got to go to another hated uh, chapter of the Bible, Romans 13. But Romans 13, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders, elders, ministers, and submit to them. There's that dreaded word, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. That's the writer of Hebrews' way of saying you need to belong to the true church, unity or autonomy. That there's a position, too. There's only a choice. You can be one or you can be alone. Solo fide or solo fide. Creed or chaos. Creed or chaos. That's the choice. That's our text, chaos. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bitri. But the men of Judah followed their kings steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Division. Church is now divided. Verse 3. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines who had left, whom he had left to care for the house and put them in the house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up into the day of their death, living as in widowhood. When I first read this, I thought, man, why didn't the narrator just ignore this? <laughs> I mean, this is history, but do we have to know it? Or if we have to know it, why not just push it to the end of the chapter? But no, the narrator puts this scene front and center so that you have to see it. He wants you to see this chapter. He wants you to deal with it. Did not go into them, it says. David did not go into them means no children. These women were shut off from motherhood. The greatest curse in the ancient world was to not have children. And then when it says that he, uh, they were widowhood, they were shut up until the day living as in widowhood. That means no family, no hope, no dream. No longing for a family or a life. David damaged these women. Shut them up. Shut them in. Locked them away. Threw away the key. There's no greater misery for an ancient woman in Israel in these days to have no hope of family, no hope of even children, no dreams. Why would he damage these women this way? Because he's already damaged one woman. And he saw these women as damaged goods, and he put them away because he's already damaged one, Bathsheba. And now, because of that, he damages more. He's worthless. Sheba's not the only worthless character in chapter 20. And, you know, as we've been going through Samuel and 2 Samuel, you've realized that Samuel never whitewashes David. Man after God's own heart, God's anointed, all true despicable nonetheless. The Bible is full of misery. 
Because this is a dark world and the darkness has pervaded the church and too many Christians have had their lives damaged by other Christians. Too many Christians have had their lives damaged by others. There's help. There's help here and there. But in the end, when it's all said and done, when it's all said and done, it's just sin, misery, and death. Chaos. As the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 1.15, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. You see, this world is worse than meaningless. It's chaos. It's a sad, dark world. Where's wisdom? Verse 4. We move on. Then the king said to Amasa, call the men of Judah together with me. Gather them to me. Three days and be here yourself. It's an order. The king orders his new general Amasa. But Amasa himself is somewhat worthless. So verse 5 says, so Amasa went to summon Judah. But he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. He was unproductive to say the least. So David has to call another. Verse 6. And David said to Abashai. He calls Abashai. Now Sheba the son of Bitri will do more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him. Lest he get himself to a fortified city and escape from us. So he has to now call Abashai to general his troops. But why not Joab? Abashai is Joab's brother. Why not call Joab? Because Joab's already proved worthless. Murderer. So David overlooks him. He murdered his son, Absalom. Verse 7. And there went out after him Joab's men, which that's interesting. So the narrator still calls him Joab's men. A little foreshadowing, if you will. He called after him Joab's men and the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty men. And they went out from Jerusalem to pursue, pursue Joab. Uh, the bad guy, <laughs> Sheba, the son of Bitri. <laughs> so Amasa's late. He was late to the show. He's about to get later. Verse 8 says, When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them late. But then Joab shows up on the scene. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment. What's interesting as you read this text, uh, the narrator really slows Joab's entrance into the scene with all the illustrations and all the language. You really, it, when I read it, it's almost like Joab's come walking on the scene in slow motion and you can hear this chilling, you know, uh, uh, music in the background, this action music, but it's kind of intense. It's a little mysterious action. He's coming into the scene and Joab was coming, walks into the scene, slow-mo, wearing a soldier's garment and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on the thigh and he went forward and as he went forward, the, the sword fell out. The sword fell out and he caught it. Right as he's about to meet Amasa, it just so happened the sword falls out of his hand. Now he's holding the hand and the narrator wants you to see his hand. It's his left hand. And the narrator wants you to see that left hand with the sword. Dressed for success, ironically, the sword came out as he went to shake Amasa's hand. And a little backstory: Amasa killed Joab's brother. Right? You following? He's got a sword in his left hand. The one who killed family in front of him. And took his job, too. Took his job. Verse 9. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? 
And so now Amasa's, you know, he's, he's disarmed Amasa with his words and his language, and he reaches out with his beard and his right hand, and his right hand is empty. Actually, it's full of beard, and he does something that's uh, cultural, uh, showing his affection and love for Amasa. But what the narrator wants you to see is that the right hand is empty. And the right hand in the ancient world is the sword hand. The sword hand is empty. Amasa's disarmed. Nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about. Verse 10, but Amasa did not observe. No, well, there's that sword. <laughs> so the narrator says, nothing to worry about, but remember the left hand. Look at the left hand. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. The narrator wants you to see the left hand because Joab is worthless. He takes this opportunity and struck Amasa with a sword in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Somebody forgot to tell Amasa this is a story of worthless men doing what they do. When you take the foolish of Amasa here and the worthlessness of Joab, you add them together, you get sin, misery, and death. Chaos. Sheba forsook the kingdom of God. David forsook some within the kingdom of God. And now Sheba just forsakes the kingdom and goes his own way, does his own thing. He's not just leaving the kingdom, but he's just doing his own thing in the kingdom. He says, Lord, Lord, when he needs to. But clearly Christ said, depart from me, for I never knew you. But clearly David, a sinner, belonged to the Lord. How do you know? How do you know who you are in the story? For clearly not everyone who belongs to the kingdom belongs to the king. But how do you know? Do I belong to the king? Heidelberg says Christ ordains men to use the keys of the kingdom. And according to Christ, the gospel ministry opens and closes the gates of heaven. You see, God has not left us alone to subjectively, subjectively wallow in our, in our misery. Do I belong to the Lord? Am I Christian? He's given us objective word and objective truth. He's given us the word and the sacraments. An objective word in the church from heaven declaring to you that you are in Christ. Baptism saves, right? God's word, baptism saves. You are washed from all your sins by the blood of Christ. How do you know you're a Christian? I've been baptized, pastor. And I say, oh, good answer. How do you know you're a Christian? The Lord's Supper. I've become one with Christ. Not as if I live, but Christ in me. How do I know I'm a Christian? Well, I belong to this small, insignificant church over there called Covenant Reformed. And others will say, well, that's foolish. Well, it's the wisdom of God. For where two or three are gathered, Christ says, there I am. Christ commands us to go and make disciples in all nations, baptizing and teaching them all that I've commanded you. And lo, there I am. It's always in the church. Christ is there with the people of God. See, members of a true church have their membership in heaven. There's objectivity. I belong to Christ and his church. 
Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bitri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And it appears here in our text that Joab gained back his men. He's back with his men. He's leading them. And the scene gets darker. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, just in misery, complete misery, dying. His entrails spilled out on the highway, wallowing in his own blood. And anyone who came by seeing him stop, they all stop. Nobody does anything. Here's David's chosen. Here's the chosen by the king, one of God's people, and no one cares left. He's in misery. He's in pain. Finally, someone just throws him aside like a piece of garbage. And when a man saw that all the people stopped, he carried a massa out of the highway into a field and threw a garment over him. It's just a story story of sinners doing what they do best. It's hard to read. And then Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, to Beth Machai, and all the Bitrites assembled and followed him in. If you notice that text, he, he goes through all the tribes. He's kind of worthless at gathering a following, really just his own clan, his own clan with him. So he runs to a fortified city, and, and Joab knew what to do with fortified cities. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him at Abel of uh, Beth Machai. And they cast up a mound against the city, siege warfare. And they stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. You see, so far this story has been a worthless men. So it's been a story of misery. It's been a story of sin, misery, and death. It's a story of war. That's really what this chaotic world leads to, right? War, more rumors of more. But then finally... Verse 16, then a wise woman. All these worthless men, and finally, a wise woman. Then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And the woman calls, and she calls to reason. She calls for reason, and she calls for piety. She addresses piety. She says, Verse uh, 19, I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is mother in Israel. Will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? She appeals to Joab's piety. She's reasonable. Why take all of the city? What do you need? Joab answers, I won't destroy the city. He listens to the wise woman. We got one guy in there. (laughs) One guy. So off with his head. And because of wisdom, the story doesn't end with sin and misery nonetheless. It ends with peace. Verse 22. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bitri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet. Now, if you remember, uh, Sheba blew the trumpet to divide the people. Now Joab is blowing the trumpet to unite the people at the end of the story. And they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. It's all darkness in this text. Chaos and darkness until wisdom. Wisdom spoke and then peace. Light from the darkness. But if you notice, the story actually doesn't end there. 
It ends with a reference to Joab restored to command. Verse 23, now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. The murderer is back on top. The one who does what he likes to do when he wants to do it. The one who can't be controlled is in control of all the army of Israel. This is foreshadowing. There's more darkness to come. There's peace from time to time. There's peace from time to time in this life. There's help in this sad world, but in the end, when it's all said and done, it's worthless man after worthless man, sin, misery, than death. So this chapter leaves us wanting. Wanting he who heals the brokenhearted and binds all their wounds. The Bible says that Christ has come to wipe every tear from our face. You see, Christ is the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God who overcame the darkness. Unlike Sheba, Christ draws people to himself. Unlike David, he casts the worthless out and binds up the abused. He casts out the worthless. He shuts the worthless out and he brings to himself the abused. Isaiah 42 verse 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Unlike David, Jesus never shuts up his people. There's no widowhood in Christ for in Christ God will never leave or forsake you. God the Father will never deny you his mercy. You see, Christ's obedience to the king has purchased you an eternal love that overcomes the chaos. Christ is, for those who are called both Jews and Greeks, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so the, the necessity of wisdom is this. The foundation of wisdom is this. There's no salvation apart from Christ and his church. In the beginning, the light that overcame the darkness is the light of the word that overcomes our chaotic, sinful hearts. And the gospel is the power of God and the moral of the story. You need Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The wise and only thing to do from this text is to believe in Christ. Put your faith and hope in Christ. Know that Christ has overcome all your sins with his precious blood. And he is working all things together, even the darkness, even the chaos. He is working them all for your good, for he is faithful. And he is our God and our Savior, the light that overcomes the darkness. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.
www.thepodcastnetwork.com. 